The book of Habakkuk is an Old Testament book near the end of the Old Testament. I'd like for you to turn to one verse in the second chapter, verse 4. And um, when you find that, then turn to the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to refer to chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Hebrews. So you'll want to hold your place at that, please. And verse 4 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk reads like this. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. The Christian life in the Bible is really pictured often as a race, not a sprint, but a marathon, a long distance race that requires endurance and stamina and determination because not everything in the Bible, uh, not everything about the Christian life in the Bible is easy. And sometimes I think that uh, we feel like just kind of looking up to heaven and saying, is it worth it? The, there is this mood in the book of Habakkuk because there is no evidence of God and no sign that God really cares. And Habakkuk is really um, at a point where he's really wondering if it is worth it. The Chaldeans are rising to power and God does nothing. He said, how long do we cry violence and God does not respond? I suppose we all have read accounts of people who have been mugged or robbed or raped and people stand by as spectators while they scream for help and do nothing. And we abhor such a thing. We are, at, we are appalled by the fact that somebody could watch while another is attacked and do nothing. But think how difficult it was for Habakkuk because that's how he saw God. And God was aware of the violence in his land and Habakkuk was crying out violence and God did nothing. What do you do about that? And so God answers Habakkuk in verse 5 of chapter 1. And he says, Habakkuk, I am doing something in your time. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the enemy, to discipline your nation. Now God's seen as being on the other side. <laughs> He's taking the side of the enemy. What do you do about that? It's one thing to serve God when it's easy. It's another thing to trust God when it seems like God is aligned against us and is joined up with the enemy. And he wants us to trust him and just wait on him. What do you do about it? So Habakkuk said, I'm going to take my position on this uh, watchtower and I'm not going to do anything until God gives me some word about this. And so God says in chapter 2, here's the message. I want you to print it so everybody can read it. In that day, they 
placarded things on huge signs so folks going to and fro could read them without pausing, without stopping. He said, I'm going to give you a message. This is the message, and I want you to put it so everybody can read it on the move. This is the message. The just ones, the righteous ones, shall live by faith. Now that message encompassed two philosophies and still does. It encompassed the universal philosophy of the proud to say, those who say, I'll live as I please, do what I want, with whom I want, when I want. You see it every day, that arrogant universal pride that says, this is my life and I want to live it. I'll live it as I please. And it encompassed the philosophy of the people of God. And it was at this point that Habakkuk was saying, I wish you'd kind of give me some more on this, Lord. I wish you'd kind of give me a little more than that. But God spends the rest of chapter 2 describing what is going to happen to the proud. The chapter, second chapter, he says that the proud's heart swells up in him until it bursts like a balloon. But he never ever says what's going to happen to the righteous one. He just says, the righteous one shall live by his faith. However, that one sentence, that one statement is found three other times in the New Testament. It is a powerful word, a, a magnificent message. It's found in the book of Romans, which is the document of man's salvation. And it is found in the book of Galatians, which is the document of human liberty. And it's found in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, which is the chapter that deals with faith. So I want you to turn to that 10th chapter and begin reading with me at verse 32. Now here's what he's saying in chapter 10. I'm going to explain to you what it means when, when it says the just shall live by faith. I'm going to give you a marvelous explanation of what that means, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk didn't get the answer, but you and I who have the New Testament get the answer, and it's found in the 10th and 11th chapters of the book of Hebrews, beginning verse 32 of chapter 10. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming heirs, sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What does it mean when it says, the righteous live by faith. First, it means that faith gives us a different way of seeing things. Faith gives us a way to see what God wants us to see. 
Enabled by faith, the righteous are able to see the future as clearly as the present. So that what is out in the future unfolds to them by the enabling of God through one's faith so that what is out there is as clearly defined as what is here. Some of you may be familiar with the name Johnny Erickson Tada. She is this young lady who was, uh, as a young woman, vibrant and alive and athletic and beautiful. And she was stricken in an accident and was paralyzed and is paralyzed from the neck down. She's a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair. And out of this experience, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata came to a deep abiding faith in God. As you, as you know, she paints with a brush in her mouth and she travels all over the country giving her testimony. And somebody asked her about what... How, is this, how did this evolve to this kind of faith? This is what she said. I remember the, the sensation of feeling. I remember running through grass barefooted. I remember wading in cold mountain streams or climbing rugged mountains. I remember riding horseback. I remember the sensations of feeling. But God has helped me realize that all of those experiences put together cannot compare with the glory He has prepared for me. The righteous one is able to see the spiritual as clearly as the physical. And the righteous one is able to see the invisible as clearly as he sees the visible. And he describes that or illustrates it in verse 7 of chapter 11, when he talks about Noah. So God comes to Noah one day. He says, Noah, I want you to build a boat out here in the desert. Well, fine, why build a boat out in the desert? Well, because of the flood. Well, what's a flood? He said, well, that's the result of a lot of rain. And Noah said, what's rain? I mean, never seen rain, never been rain. And so God said, I want you to build a boat here in the desert for the flood, which is the result of rain. He had never seen any of that. And God said, the reason I want you to do this is for the saving of your household and for the salvation of a nation. And he saw the end as clearly as the present. And so Jehazi, the servant boy of Elisha, went inside, he looked outside, saw all these armies, this army, all these people surrounding, and he was frightened. He told Elisha, look out there, the army is aligned against you. He said, well, there are people that are with us or more than with them. And so Elisha took a count, one, two, and looked outside and he was counting up to about a hundred when Elijah prayed a simple prayer. Lord, open his eyes. And he opened his eyes and he saw what Elisha saw. Faith enables us to see things differently. Maybe some of you have built a house before and something like this may have happened. The architect, you and the architect go out to the property and you're walking around on the property beautiful place to build a house, nothing there, you know, just bare ground, but a beautiful view out in the distance and you're walking around and 
the architect says, see that over there? And you look over there and there's a bush. And he, you say, yeah, that's a bush. You know? He said, no, that's not a bush. That's the living room. Oh, that's the living room. As you walk around a little bit, there's this huge boulder. And he says, look, you see that? And you say, yeah, yeah, that's a boulder. Reckon we can get all these rocks. Oh, he said, that, that's not a boulder. That's the kitchen. Oh, I, that's the kitchen. And while you're standing on this property with nothing on it, that architect is able to give you a concept because of his sight. That's what God does to the righteous. He gives us a concept because of what he can see. So you're out in the front yard, kind of mowing the grass or working in the yard one day, and and you're just conscious of God's presence, and y'all are just kind of communicating in prayer. And God says, what about this guy over there? Oh, and you say, oh, that's, that's my neighbor. He and I don't get along too well. He's, he's kind of eccentric. God says, no, that's not your neighbor. That's my son for whom I died. And, and what about this guy? There's a guy coming down the street, and you say, oh, that's my boss, can't stand the man. He's a slave driver, has no feeling, no pity on anybody. And God says, no, that's, that's not your boss. That's, that's my creation for whom I died. And I allowed you to have this job here so that your life could touch his. And by the influence of your faithfulness and your promptness at work and by your lifestyle, I placed you where he is in order that you might affect him with the power of the gospel. And he just takes his hand and he kind of says, sweeps it out across your neighborhood and he says, and, and, and what about this? And you say, oh, that's my neighborhood. Sure has changed. When I moved here, just a few houses on this block. God says, no, that's not your neighborhood. That's your mission. I brought you here years ago and planted you here knowing that all these people would someday live down your street and around your block and I placed you here so that there might be salt and light here. And a boy comes out of the house and God said, what about that young man, fine looking young man? You say, oh, that's my boy, that's my son. Frankly, God, I'm really worried about him. He, he seems like he's rebellious. He's He's withdrawing from me. And he says, no, that's not your son. That's my son. Or did you not mean it that Sunday? You brought that boy down to the front of the church and dedicated him to me. If you turn that boy, if you release that boy back to me, he's my son. I'll help you nurture him, help him grow. What about that old lady over there across the street? And you say, oh, that's some old lady who moved in a few months ago kind of a recluse, nobody really knows her, I don't know much about her, oh no, that's, that's my saint, you need to get to know her. Faith enables us to endure what others would not choose to endure. Now if a person can see what God sees, and if he's able to um, hear what God says, he's able to see the, the, the invisible as clearly as the visible. And if he's able to see the future as plainly as he sees the present, the now, that's going to make a difference, obviously, in the way he lives. He's going to have a lifestyle that is different. It's what got Jesus in trouble. 
But Jesus said, I do only what I see the Father do, and I speak only what I hear the Father speak. And the people around him, you know, couldn't understand that. They didn't see what he saw, and they didn't hear what he heard. And so his life and his presence was very intimidating to them. And I tell you that if you take your faith seriously and you begin to see what God wants you to see, your presence will be very intimidating and even your Christian friends will question you. H.G. Wells has a book called The Country of the Blind. It's a story of a man one day who was wandering around and he happened onto this little hidden valley. And in this valley was this community surrounded by high walls. And so he went through the walls of the city into that place, that community. And everybody there welcomed him. They, they received him. They, they were warm and friendly to him. The, the, the problem was nobody in that community had eyes and so with his eyes, he was a very intimidating person, presence. They, they thought, they called his eyes these instruments of the devil. And they were wanting him to remove his eyes so he could be like them. He fell in love with a young woman in the, in the community. and They were going to be married, but she felt like she couldn't marry him as long as he had eyes and so she began to put pressure on him to remove his eyes and he almost did until one day he saw the sunlight on the, on the rocks above and the white flowers in the meadows of the rim and he escaped the country of darkness never to return. When you have eyes to see what God wants you to see you become a very intimidating presence. And that results in some forms of rejection and misunderstanding. And that means that you're here and everybody else is different and so there is this tremendous pressure to conform it re and it requires endurance. Faith enables you to endure being a Christian. Faith enables you to endure the cost of being different. Just think what Noah went through when his friends came, saw him building this boat. And they said, what are you doing building a boat? Went through the same thing. Why? There's a flood. What's that? Rain. What's that? And I have, a, I have a feeling that in their private conversation, his friend said, that guy is, is different, strange. Don't have anything to do with him. And Abraham left Ur, the most sophisticated civilization of his time, to become a nomad, wandering around. And the scripture says that Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And he endured seeing him who is invisible. That sight that faith gives enables you to, to endure it. Third, faith enables you to please God. Now I need to spend a little time on this because if the scripture says without faith it's impossible to please him and if by faith one pleases him 
then it seems to me that our great desire would, would be to know what that means because if there's anything we would want, it would be God was pleased with us. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Now I'm going to give you a homespun parable. I'll try to do better than the one I gave the other day. Nobody got it. You know. And I've taken grief over that. So I'm going to give one that I, that I hope everybody can get. Let's suppose that you decided you were going to do a little mountain climbing. That looks exciting. You've seen a little on TV. I think I could do that, be a mountain climber. The mountain's there. What a challenge. And so you read up on how to do it, and you, 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 you read about all the equipment that's necessary. So you, you, you start building your muscles for mountain climbing. Start out just climbing a few little hills, you know, and, and, and do a little exercise till you kind of get some muscles built up. And then you decide it's time to do it. And you know where there's a big 800-foot-high sheer face, solid rock face, 800 feet high. And some have climbed it before, so you know it can be done. You can do it just, you can do it just the same as anybody else. And so you make preparation for the day. You get that stuff, you know, those things that you nail in the little crevices, you know. I think they're called chalks. And those hooks that hook on them and ropes and stuff like that, you're going to do it solo. You got your plaque in your back pocket, says your name and when you did it, so you could put that on the top when you got there. And you start up climbing. At first, you can do it without the chalks and the ropes, just fingers and toes, you know, just inching up the side of this sheer rock face, 800 feet high. And then it gets to the point where you have to start using what you've learned. And so you start, get your mallet out, and you drive those little pegs in, whatever they're called, and hook on there and pull yourself up to the next feet, and then you drive another one in, never looking down, don't look down. It's 800, 600 feet down. After getting about 600 feet high, it's getting to be night, and you hadn't made it to the top yet. Thought you could do it in the day, but not going to be possible. So you find a little crevice in the side of this sheer cliff and you crawl in there and get some sleep, try to rest in the night. Next morning you wake up excited. This is a day. Conquer the mountain. And you're inching up that side of that cliff an inch at a time, driving chalks in and pulling yourself up, driving chalks in and pulling yourself up. And finally you're one step away. And you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to the chalk here with my left hand, and I'm just going to throw this rope behind me here. I'm going to swing my right hand up on. I'm going to catch hold of the ledge with my right hand. I'm going to pull myself up to the top. I'm going to stand up on the top, stretch out my hands. Got it. And so while holding on to the chalk with your left hand, just as you reach up with your right hand to get the top, sucker slips. It's coming loose. And with your left hand, you lose your grip. With the right hand, you're hanging on with a slipping chalk peg. With your left hand, grappling for something to catch hold of. And all of a sudden, you feel it. You grab something sticking out from the side of the crevice. It's a root of a sapling. 
And this, this sapling is growing up on the top and send its roots down into that rock crevice and has protruding out the side with a little root about that big around and you grab it with your right hand and are hanging on for dear life with the chalk in your left hand and the root in your right hand. About that time that peg comes out and so you let go of everything with your left hand and you're hanging on to that root with both hands for dear life. You're going to die. And for the first time you take a peek down. Shouldn't have done it. Hmm. 800 feet, sheer air between you and the rocks below. You're going to die. Now you know it's not going to do any good while you're hanging there to call for help, but you do. That's all you can do. You start calling, help! And it just kind of echoes down the canyon. Help, 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 help. And you call again. Help, 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 help. And all of a sudden you feel these two brawny hands come down and, and surround your wrist and these two big strong brawny hands are holding on to your wrist, onto your hands and this big masculine voice says let go you're not about to let go until you see what's there so you kind of lean back a little bit and you look up and you look into the face of your fifth grade teacher. Now, this guy never liked you. And uh, in fact, he had, uh, he quit teaching because of you. Had a nervous breakdown. Huh? The guy, guy had a nervous breakdown, left the class and said, I'll not go back as long as there are guys like him in there and swore the day he left that there'd be a day when he'd get even. Now you're looking right into his eyes. And he's saying, let go. And there's something about the way he says, let go, that knows, that causes you to know, don't do it. Because if I let go, he's going to let go. And if I let go, then it's up to him to save me. So I hang on. You hang on. Call again, help, help. And about that time, you feel these two little hands surrounding about halfway around your wrists, little bitty tiny hands. And there's this little bitty tiny voice that says, let go. And, and you, 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 you lean your head back and you look up and there's this little old kid there, about six or seven years old, weighs about 40 pounds. Let go. And you're not about to let go because you know if you let go, he may hold on. He, it looks like he wants to save you, but you know he can't. If you let go, not only do you go down, he goes down. That's the end of the parable. Now, let me ask you this question. You're listening. To whom would you let go? At what point in your life, at what point on the side of that mountain would you release yourself? Well, we know the answer. We would release ourselves to somebody we know loves us and is concerned about us and wants to save us, 
who has the ability and the power and the strength to do it. So it's a twofold answer. I would release myself to the person I could trust. I would release myself to the person I know has the ability to do it. Now you understand why it must be an affront to God when we don't release our life to Him. Because we're saying to Him, either I don't believe you care, I believe you're against me, or we're saying I don't believe you've got the wherewithal to deliver. And how it must please him. No wonder it pleases him for me just to release my life to him, to release my children to him, and my job to him, and my problems to him, and my eternal soul to him. I believe that he cares about me. I've seen the demonstration of it in Scripture in the cross, and I believe he has the wherewithal to deliver me. No wonder it pleases him. And so when Arm tells about watching this movie being made of a trapeze artist. And he said, I was standing there watching this movie company make this film of this girl on a high wire, high trapeze artist. And he said, as I watched her, I went home and said, I got me a sermon, point one, in order to get from there to here, you have to let go of there. In order to get where you want to get, in order to see what you've never been able to see, in order to endure what you've never been able to endure, you have to let go of here. Second point. In order to get from here to here, you have to run the risk of failing, falling. He said, for a moment, you're suspended in time, and all you have is His promise. And third, third point, you don't have all day to make up your mind what you're going to do. I've come to the end of this sermon, to this invitation, to this plea. Some of us have been saved. We have released our salvation, our eternal soul to God. But it seems to me that if we are willing to trust Him with our eternal destiny, why are we not able to release our life to Him daily? Why are we so riddled and wrenched by worry and fear? So I may be speaking to some this morning who just need to turn loose of the here and risk the fall until you're in the arms and the safety of God by the absolute commitment of your life, absolute release of your faith to Him. And there may be some who need to come this morning to experience that salvation that comes when we say, no more me, no more I, no more my effort to struggle, but Him and Him alone. Or maybe to come and place your life in the church. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then our choir will begin to sing. I, I want us to sing right at the first, just as I am. I know there's a different song, but I want us to do that in first. Not even change. Just as I am without one plea, that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. I release my life to you.
my trust to you. After we've had prayer, I invite you to come. Our Father, I pray that this day will be the day when we're able to see that which we have not been able to see. Your plan for our life, your purpose for us, your future for us, your mission for us, our children, our jobs, and then to give us endurance for the struggle that that means when we release it to you. The faith to say, Lord, I place in trust, in your trust, in your care, my life. Whatever you will for me, whatever you desire for me, here is my life, dear Lord. Let that be our prayer, dear Father. Cause that to be our desire, for I pray in Jesus' name, for His sake. In a spirit of prayer, now, would you stand and will you start to sing? We invite you to come.